You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition and their new Centerfire Rifle Ammunition Terminal Ascent. Now, the Terminal Ascent has a slipstream polymer tip that helps flatten trajectories and initiates low-velocity expansion at longer ranges. The Terminal Ascent gives you match-grade long-range accuracy in a bonded hunting bullet and it comes in a variety of cartridges including the 6.5 Creedmoor, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 28 Nosler, the 7mm Remington Mag 30-06 and the 300 Win Mag. If you want to find more information about the Terminal Ascent, visit federalpremium.com and while you're there, check out It's Federal Season, the official podcast of Federal Ammunition. On today's podcast, we're going to do a little Q&A. I've been getting questions just about daily now on, you know, stuff that's archery related. It seems like between the ranch fair and the hunting public, uh, a lot of people are starting to reevaluate their setups this time of year. And it seems like, I don't know, in my perspective, it's happening more so this year than in previous years. But it always seems like that August month, guys are, you know, finally starting to pay attention again to their archery equipment and getting things back and ready for the season. So I'll go over some of the more common archery-related questions that I'm getting. I've also been getting a fair number of questions just in relation to climbing systems, sticks. Uh, when I had that one stick video that I just posted, a lot of questions came out of that, some of which I've answered in the YouTube comments, but a lot of stuff has also been coming in through uh, private message, through Facebook or Instagram or anything like that. So I'll go over some of the mobile system and gear-related things first and then dive into more of the questions related strictly to archery, just to kind of keep things segregated. So one guy had a question, you know, I showed in that video that I had a Doyle's gear hoist that had basically run through the bottom side of my dump pouch. And was curious how you can do that on various other systems other than the Amazon one that I had bought and used in that video. And essentially, if you have a solid material on your dump pouch, so like, let's say it's a Cordura or a nylon or, you know, something like that, what you can basically do is buy a grommet kit off of, you know, eBay or Amazon, maybe even from your local craft store. And there's lots of video tutorials on YouTube of how to kind of use those little systems and be able to place grommets in. Essentially, you have a couple tools and one tool allows you to pop a hole through the fabric. And then you have a top and bottom side of the grommet and there's a little tool and you kind of pound them together and you make that connection on either side. Uh, so it makes a nice clean grommet that way. And then you can run your uh, bow pull-up rope through that. 
However, if you have something like a mesh where it's not as easy to just, you know, add a grommet, another option that you can do is you can take a soldering iron and you can do this too with that Cordura dump pouch also, but the grommet gives you a nice smooth surface to be able to glide against. And with that soldering iron, what you can do is you can basically heat it up and then just push it right through the fabric nice and slow. And as it goes through the fabric, it'll be melting that or that material around it as it goes. So you just, with that conical head on that soldering iron, just continue to slowly push and that hole will burn and get larger and larger and larger until you basically have that whole soldering iron head pushed through and then you can remove it and you're left with a nice little hole that already has, you know, nice burned fabric edges. So you're not going to have that continue to unravel. And that seems to work pretty well with that. When I did it on the, uh, on the mesh pouch, like what you get on the tethered cis haulers, I don't know that it's quite as smooth as what you would get with a metal grommet, but it seems to work pretty well. And then next, I don't get questions on this quite as much as I used to, but there's still questions coming through on whether or not I can either build custom sets of climbing sticks or even individual steps so that guys can, you know, put together their own DIY sticks, similar to what I've put together for mine. And, uh, you know, I've, I've talked about this before and I still kind of in the, am in the same boat that it just takes, you know, too much of my time to be able to build those. My machine, uh, in my garage is not really like high volume machining equipment. So for me to, you know, set up and run a job, it just, it's way too much setup work. Uh, the machine speeds, feeds and speeds have to be really slow. Uh, so it just, it ends up taking way too long. Um, and it's not worth basically what I'd have to charge to make them. That said, there are a lot of options on the DIY market. Now, the most common one that I'm aware of is Eastern woods outdoors. They sell double steps as well as standoffs in various configurations. Uh, whether you want, you know, just kind of straight across the top on your double step, or you want them angled up, they have ultralight and regular versions of the standoffs and other components as well. So you can basically build your entire climbing stick. It ends up being. Uh, fairly expensive if you go and buy all the individual components to the point where if there's a certain stick on the market, you know, I was telling this to another guy today, if there's a certain stick on the market that you really are liking the design of, like, you know, say it's the Lone Wolf Custom ones or it's the Shakars or the B-Sticks or something like that, uh, in many cases, it can almost be better off just to buy those instead of trying to replicate them. Uh, but that said, the ones that you can buy from those uh, DIY systems and those DIY kits even though they can be a little bit more expensive, still make some really solid sticks. So, you know, you can, you basically go either way. Another question, uh, which, you know, came up again after I posted the video, that stick that I'd built for the one stick method, it had a cam cleat, like what you would see on the old Muddy Pro sticks. So the question is basically, is it preferable to have one of those cam cleats, even though they're more expensive, or is it better to have a Versa button? And one advantage of the cam cleat is that when you pop the rope into that cam cleat, it is so simple, so quick. It is, I think the easiest method to be able to attach a stick out of anything. Uh, but the problem with it is, well, the biggest problem is just that it costs a lot of money uh, to try and implement it. It's a little bit more work to DIY one. If you buy them as part of the muddy pro sticks, I'm just not a, a fan overall of how heavy those sticks are for the amount of length that you get. I think they're only like a, you know, 16 or 17 inch step spacing, if I remember right. And they weigh like two and a half pounds a piece. Uh, but if you build your own sticks, then you can obviously make them a lot lighter if you want to. They are still expensive. I want to say they're like 20 or 30 bucks per cam cleat. So if you want to set a three or four, it's going to get pretty expensive pretty fast. And 
if you're using them as intended, you can pop that rope in the cleat really fast, but then you're still tying the half hitch. So you end up not saving quite as much time. If I'm comparing that system to a Versa button where I'm running like a length of quarter inch am steel uh, for, you know, that buckleless method or the rope mod, as a lot of people would hear it called, it's probably only a few seconds savings per stick. Because uh, really, you're looking at the difference in time that it takes for me to wrap that am steel over the spliced eye and then pull it taut versus just taking a rope and popping in. And it's, it's really it's really not that much different. So I would say it makes sense for the one stick method, the way that I had that stick set up and the way that I was using it. But on my normal sticks, for example, if I'm running three or four sticks just to climb normally, then for me, it's not worth it to go with the camp cleats. I would just rather stick with the uh, Versa button style that I have and just continue to use that quarter and jam steel. Another guy wants to know uh, if I prefer the Rope Man 2 versus the Rope Man 1. If you're using rope that's at least 10 millimeters, I prefer the Rope Man 1. It's just a little bit easier, a little bit smoother in general. Uh, but if the rope is 8 millimeter, like the starting Oplex, then the Rope Man 2 is what you want to go with. You know, Rope Man 1, it, it technically it holds, uh, it seems to work, but it's outside of spec. So for that reason, I would recommend the Rope Man 2 over the Rope Man 1. Of course, you got to be a little bit careful with the Rope Man 2 just because of the smaller teeth on that tend to grab certain rope sheaths. And sometimes, you know, it, it almost, it kind of pulls away and grabs enough that you can get little lifted fibers from the sheath and things like that. It's not a huge structural risk, but it does kind of make your rope fuzz and fray up a little bit more. But what I found is that if you take all of your tension off of that cam before you release it, and when you open up that cam to let line out, if you're making sure you're opening it up all the way and not partially, you can all but eliminate that grabbing that the rope man would otherwise do. So I don't have any issues personally running the rope man too, but there are a couple other options like the CT roll and lock or the Kong duck. And those are both other popular options. I like the rope man just from the perspective that it grabs that rope right next to your uh, carabiner. So there's no shake rattle, anything like that. Uh, and it seems to work pretty well. There's DRT and SRT as pretty common climbing methods. They're much more common in the arborist um, community than the hunting community, but it's starting to gain a little bit of traction even amongst hunters. Uh, so a lot of people want to know, would I ever try SRT or DRT? Is there any times where it would work better than certain scenarios? Basically just what are my thoughts on it? And I think there's a lot of things that are appealing about that system, but there's also some things that you know, really caused me to, to hold back. And a lot of it just has to do on your overall situation and your overall setup with SRT or DRT. And I suppose I should just uh, real quick, give a rundown of what those are uh, that people don't know. DRT is called double rope technique. It goes by um, other names also, but DRT is probably the most common in our circles. And it effectively allows you to take a throw ball and set a line up in a tree and then take one single rope and ascend the tree and descend the tree with that one piece of rope. So it might be just like a really long section of, um, of Samson predator rope, for example, and you can basically climb with minimal equipment. And as far as arborist systems go, it's relatively inexpensive because really you're buying the throw ball, the throw line in that rope, and you can get into a whole bunch of different trees. There are some pros and cons for certain trees. If they're leaning, 
uh, or things like that. But really all you need is a branch to be able to initially throw that throw ball around, you know, a weight bearing branch. And then you can make, you can make it work in a lot of scenarios. And the difference with SRT, SRT stands for single rope technique. And as opposed to double rope technique, it's a little bit uh, more streamlined, I think, in my opinion, but there's also more equipment involved. So the trade-off comes with cost. The DRT is more effort. The rope is actually sliding through the, the crotch of the tree as you go. It's moving the entire time. Whereas with SRT, you would throw that throw ball, get your line set, and then that rope doesn't move. It's just, you know, kind of tied in statically to your anchor up in the tree. And then you can just ascend the rope using techniques that are very common and widely used amongst arborists. And that rope never has any slack in it. So it's a very safe method. SRT definitely, you know, from what I've tried, it's easier than DRT just in terms of overall effort. Uh, it's actually, you know, once you got the, the line set up, it's, it's pretty quick and easy. I think the biggest holdup for me with either one of those systems is number one, the whole throw ball aspect. And number two, just the overall stealthiness of the system. I feel like with my climbing sticks, I can get in just as tight as I think I possibly can uh, to a, a bedded deer if that's the setup I'm going with. And I can just be really slow. I can climb up the backside of that tree and just be extra meticulous with all of my movements, not be shaking the tree canopy at all, and just climb the tree like a ninja. Whereas with SRT or DRT, probably more so I'd say with DRT, uh, it's it's a little bit more, um, well, if you watch it being done, you'll be able to, to understand kind of what I'm, I'm talking about. It's not quite as, uh, methodical of a method. There's a little bit more movement involved, which on a big tree, honestly, it's probably not that big of a deal. You got, you know, tree canopy, uh, you're tied into a big enough limb. It might not cause that tree to shake that much. And you can do it slower. I think more so with SRT than DRT. DRT, it looks like there's a little bit more effort involved and I'm more familiar in trying SRT. I think SRT, you could get up the tree, you know, fairly, um, smoothly, but probably not as slow and smooth in my opinion as climbing sticks. Uh, but the, probably the bigger thing in my opinion is just the, uh, the throw ball aspect. And if you watch a lot of the videos on SRT specifically for, uh, saddle hunting or just, you know, any kind of hunting in general, but it's most commonly used for saddle hunters. The, the thing they'll recommend is you go out and scout in the spring and you can, basically set lines of paracord up in your trees as kind of presets and you just leave that paracord out in the woods. And then that eliminates you from having to use that throw ball. And that makes a lot of sense. And if a guy was going to use that system, I would absolutely say that's the way to go. Now, the issue that I'll run into, like on some of the places I hunt is I don't have necessarily the ability to go ahead and just, you know, leave paracord out in the woods everywhere. Uh, it's kind of one of those gray areas where you're leaving, you know, personal items or equipment out in the woods, which isn't always allowed in many of the places that I hunt. Is a game warden going to care if the, you know, somebody calls in and says, I'm leaving pieces of paracord out in the woods. Maybe not. They probably got bigger fish to fry, but again, just, you know, it's one of those things that I'd like to try and avoid and, and be on the right side of the law if I can. So that's one uh, potential issue, but obviously if you have private land. It's not a big deal at all. The other thing is just if I'm hunting more mobile, uh, I don't want to, with any kind of preset, I feel like I'm maybe locking myself into certain trees, but there are scenarios where it makes sense. Let's say you got a nice rut funnel and there's one tree to be in and it's going to be a good tree next year. It's going to be a good tree the year after that. And the year after that, it's just, you know, the right tree in the right spot. And that makes sense for that type of climbing technique. 
the place where I think it makes the most sense, in my opinion, is when you have trees that are simply too big to be able to fit a rope or a strap around. Uh, you know, you got a really big oak tree or cottonwood or something where, you know what I'm talking about, they're just enormous. And the only way you're climbing them is either with screw-in steps, which are also illegal in a lot of the places I hunt, or some kind of arborist technique. And if I was going to get into a big tree like that, then that's... You know, probably for me, that's the one time when I would really, really seriously consider using SRT to be able to send up into that tree. And those can be great setups because you get up into one of those big trees and there's, you know, big limbs going everywhere and you can get tucked up into that canopy and you can blend in really well. And that tree's not going to shake at all because those, each one of those individual limbs are, you know, they got a lot of, you know, beef to them. It's a strong tree. So there's a lot of, you know, upsides to be able to get up into one of those big canopies. So... I probably wouldn't do it on a mobile hunt, a run and gun hunt. I probably wouldn't carry that system in if I'm not sure where I'm going to climb. But if I have a certain wind and a, you know, a certain funnel and there's one of those trees that I know that's the only way to get up there, then that's probably when I would go ahead and carry the equipment and the throw ball and uh, the throw line and just be able to go and set up. If it's during the rut, I'm not really going to care about trying to be stealthy uh, getting up in that tree initially. I just want to get in there, get up the tree, and then I'm set there for the rest of the day. Uh, with that system, once you're done, you can repel back down, retrieve your line. So there's no issues there, but that just kind of gives you an idea of what kind of my thoughts are on it. It's definitely not probably ever going to be one of my main systems, but there are maybe some scenarios where it would make sense to use over other systems. Uh, talking about climbing sticks, back to that, uh, I got a, a few questions now that the, the Lone Wolf Custom Gear double step sticks have you know, been out for order. Uh, I was kind of on the fence about them when I saw them at ATA, but looking at what they have now, they've made a couple of key improvements over the prototypes that they had at ATA. One of them looks to be improved stiffness. If you look at the region between the top double step and where the Versa button is, it looks like they widened out that, um, that material a little bit. And I know from basically building some DIY sticks for my wife with, you know, smaller stock, a piece of aluminum, that region is very prone to having flex back and forth. If you just have a smaller uh, piece of solid rod or that's drilled out or a smaller tubing, you get a lot of flex there when you stand on that top step. And it looks like by widening that out, I have to imagine the reason they did that was to make it stiffer when you're standing on that top step. So that was one thing it looks like they changed. Also, the steps angle out away from the tree which is going to give you a little bit better separation from your toes against the bark, which makes a lot of sense. You, we've seen sticks like the leverage sticks that have used that in the past. I'm a fan of it. Um, and especially because that's a machined one piece, um, stick, it's not something you would in initially anticipate them doing. You would think they would just take a, you know, flat piece of metal and just carve out the, the profile and then put the standoffs in and be done with it. But the, the way that those steps angle out, that's a nice touch. The, uh, added ears for attachments too will allow you to, looks like basically use other attachment methods, uh, where instead of just having to use that Versa button, you can use daisy chains or whatever else to be able to attach to the sides of those sticks. And knowing and seeing kind of the way that those Versa buttons tuck into the stick above it, if you were going to just use the Versa buttons, it looks like you would have to basically store your uh, straps separate from the sticks and then basically add them to the Versa buttons as you're ready to climb, which isn't the most ideal thing in the world, I don't think. But if you use those ears, then you can basically leave those uh, individual straps 
or, you know, pieces of amp seal or daisy chains or whatever attached right to the sticks. So you don't have to worry about carrying them separately. And it looks like just the way that they have the, the bolts uh, angled kind of backwards from what they looked like at ATA, where they have the head of the square bolts facing the tree, it probably isn't, you know, it probably is a an improvement over what they had before when they were testing it out. So that's like the one, the one portion of me that I, I need to, I need to probably try it for myself to really stay for sure. Uh, looks like a lot of the comments you see around those sticks. The biggest question that you see is just around how well did they bite against the bark, especially with so many other sticks coming out with standoffs that are very sharp and bite into the tree extremely well. So I am definitely curious to see, you know, once those sticks start to get into the hands of people who, uh, you know, I've shot a lot, shot out a lot of money for them and get those on various trees. Um, then I guess we'll see for sure. But on the video that I saw posted where, uh, looked like Andre tested them on a bunch of different trees. It seemed like it bit fairly well. Uh, so assuming they bite well into the tree, I think they, they seem like a pretty, pretty legit option. Camera arm that I'll be using this year. I will be definitely starting out with the out on a limb assassin reach. Uh, that camera arm is the same one I used last year. I was on the fence about potentially changing to that new fourth arrow camera arm, the micro arm that they looks like they made for saddle hunters. And that arm looks like it's a little bit stiffer, probably get less flex, less bounce. I really like the way that fourth arrow redesigned that base to be able to, you know, pack a lot more compact and not have those four standoffs digging into, you know, material on your packs. I think they made some definite improvements there over what they had before in the base and shoulder system. But, you know, the trade-off comes down to that system is a lot heavier than what I'm getting with the, um, with the reach camera arm. And it was going to be worth the trade-off for me if that fourth arrow was going to provide more rock steady footage. So what I basically did is I went back out and tested my reach camera arm with my new camera, which is the AX 700 from Sony. And with the image stabilization on that camera, I tested it in 4k, I tested it in 1080, 60, 120, 30 frames a second. It just really seems like it's not that big of an issue. Uh, I think last year with the AX 53, when I was using it in 4k, I had some more issues. 1080, that camera has phenomenal image stabilization and it was never an issue. But it seems like for whatever reason with the AX700, it's not that big of a deal. So I'll save the little extra weight, get the nice packability of that reach arm. And that's, you know, what I'll be probably running uh, for most, if not all the season. So that kind of covers it for the mobile system related questions, at least the ones that uh, make sense to share, the ones that get asked more often than others. So now we'll jump into the archery related questions. And the first one, um, a guy wants to know, why I'm an oddball. I choose brands that are a little bit smaller and less known like new breed that I've shot for, you know, several years, uh, as well as now gearhead over the bigger brands like Matthews, Hoyt, PSC, etc. And it, it doesn't have anything to do with like me trying to spite the bigger brands or anything like, like that. No, it's, uh, it's, I think everybody, you know, just about every bow brand on the market right now makes a pretty solid bow. And there are some individual differences that'll make a guy choose one brand or another. Uh, for me, I don't really have any strong brand loyalties to any, uh, any one bow company for new breed. I had, it was actually, you know, Kyle Null when he was with the company really turned me on to those. He had me basically try one out and I ended up really liking it. It had a, a smooth draw, probably one of the smoothest of, you know, any bows that I've tried. And with that, of course, it wasn't as fast. It, you know, had the trade off of a really smooth draw cycle, but that came with, you know, 
with that less aggressive cam also came a little bit less speed than what you might get on some other cam systems. It was really easy for me to tune. I needed a bow press to be able to make changes like, you know, swapping the, uh, or shimming the cams. But, uh, you know, it was really easy for me to, once I had it in tune, it basically never came out of tune. So that was really nice. I never really had to monkey around with the cables, uh, or the cable rod or anything like that. With one of the bows, I basically just had to shim the cam once and that was, you know, that was it. Once tuned, I was able to shoot lots of different arrow setups with lots of different point weights and they would all shoot bullet holes. It was just a really forgiving, you know, rock solid setup. So that's why I shot that, um, that system for a number of years. And I mean, I still have those bows. I still shoot them every now and then. Uh, but when I went with the gear I had this year, it was, you know, really came out of me just shooting a whole bunch of bows at ATA this year and, you know, saying, if I was going to get something, it had to basically provide something that I'm not already getting with whatever I already have. And with Gearhead, it was it was kind of two things. Number one, the shorter ATA. Uh, number two, the bridge riser. Number three, did I say two things? I meant three. Number three, it was the ability to, you know, this is kind of an arbitrary thing for me, but I wanted to have a bow that would basically get me a 500 plus grain arrow shooting 270 plus. And the, the Gearhead was one of the bows that was going to be able to get me to do that. It would have been lots of other options that could have also got me to that point too. Uh, so it was kind of a minor thing for me, but, uh, for the 24 inch axle to axle bow, I'm not going to go too much into detail because we just did a podcast with skip, but I've been really impressed by how well that bow holds for such a, a short bow. I've been really happy with how I've been shooting it. Um, you know, if I was a Western guy or if I, you know, just was a fan of longer ATA bows, like a 30 or a 34 or something like that, I would definitely still have uh, that system on my uh, need to try list for sure. Because uh, as well as that 24 incher holds, I have to imagine the 30 and the 34 uh, and even their target bow, the 36 must just hold phenomenally. So, but I mean, I liked the Matthews VXR, especially when it had stabilizers on the, the bottom half, you know, the, the sidebar and the front bar, that bow with those stabilizers seems to hold really, really well. And, uh, for the guys that I know who shoot that, which is quite a few of them, uh, they all really love that Matthews, um, Hoyt. I haven't really shot a whole bunch as of, as of late, uh, same thing with PSE. Um, but really I don't have any, any strong preferences one way or the, or the other. It just comes down to what exactly you're looking for in a bow, which one you shoot the best, which one agrees with you the most. Uh, you know, backcountry feature wise, I think APA makes a solid product too. So, uh, that's, that's about it. Broadhead sharpening system. So a lot of guys now are, are finally taking the plunge and they're buying heads that are not just strictly replaceable heads. They're heads that you can get multiple uses out of, shoot multiple animals with, and just touch them up afterwards. So for me, I like broadheads that have straight edges as opposed to either convex or, or concave geometries because they're easier for me to sharpen. So I use the stay sharp guide, which is just that uh, 3d printed guide that innovative outdoors makes. And I'm able to take a blade and just pop it in to that stay sharp guide. And then I use the DMT diamond stones, but sandpaper also works. In fact, the video that the honey public did with ranch Ferry, I mean, it's basically the same thing that I do at least at the beginning. If the, the head needs, you know, a little bit of extra work, I'll start with it in that system. But then for me, instead of using like a leather strop or something to really fine, uh, fine hone that edge, what I'll use is the razor sharp edge making system. 
Uh, I had gotten mine from Bishop Archery, but there's, it looks like there's a couple other places you can get them as well. Essentially, it's an eight inch diameter paper wheel system that you would attach to a bench grinder. So you, you pop those, um, those paper wheels on there, and then you can use just like a white rouge and coat that paper wheel. And it's effectively kind of like a power strop. And with some of these broadheads that have higher steel hardnesses, like the iron wheels at 60 Rockwell C, some of those Bishop's heads are 60 Rockwell C, the cutthroats are like 55 Rockwell C. If you're trying to sharpen those by hand, you know, it's, it takes a little bit more to get that, uh, that steel to, to over time, you know, start to get to its finest and finest point. But with that razor sharp edge making system, man, it just, it's like no effort at all for me to get those things from nail biting sharp to hair popping sharp. So I really like that system a lot. A lot of questions on the easy V site, probably every other day, somebody's going to ask me if, uh, if I still use the, the EV, easy V site, if I recommend it, I have gone back and forth over the summer. I shot a lot with the black old mountain light that I bought earlier this year. I uh, shot a lot of field archery courses this year and, you know, weekly, uh, weekly leagues and things like that. And with targets going out to 80 yards, the, the movable pin site just makes a lot of sense. And a lot of the testing that I did this year with vein configurations, you know, I did a lot of shooting at uh, spot type targets. Uh, but I've also played around, you know, continually with the EZV. And currently my bow is rigged up with the EZV site on it. And that's what I'm going to be using to start out the hunting season. And what it comes down to for me is when you look at the EZV, everybody focuses in on its range finding capabilities. But when I look at the EZV, I look at it as a really robust site that also gives me the opportunity to use it as a range finding site if I need to for reasonable distances. And so for me, if I'm looking at something between like the EZV and like a five pin, you know, just non-adjustable site, then I'm going to go with the EZV based on the fact that I really like the way that it names for me. It's built like a tank, uh, especially the new uh, seven version site that they have coming out. I'll probably pick up one of those. And like I mentioned, I'm not always going to fall back on the, the range finding capabilities in every scenario, right? Like if it's, if I know it's a sub 20 yard shot, I'm just going to center the top two tick marks and just let her fly. Uh, and if it's, you know, a 60 or, you know, 55 or basically any shot over 40 yards, I mean, that's in the woods, man, a 40 plus yard shot, especially on whitetails, that's it's gotta be the right scenario. And if I got enough time to think about, if I'm going to take a, a shot over 40 yards, I got enough time to range it and really dial in and make sure that I'm holding it as I should be. But if I still have those scenarios where it's just real quick, I don't have time to range. It's during the rut. Uh, I have enough confidence shooting 3d targets and just, you know, using it like it's intended to be used and practicing with it. And that that's key. You got to know, you know, what that looks like to be able to use that range finding feature. I have enough confidence to be able to use it in that capacity. So that's kind of the reasoning for it. Uh, I think places where it makes sense to stick with a pin site is anytime when you have number one, the, the need to shoot further ranges than what the site is capable of. Like, you know, if you're building a bow set up to go out and shoot the, the total archery challenges and things like that, where you got, you know, 80, 90, 110 yard shots. Um, or if you, or say a spot and stock hunter, and you know that you're going to have all the time in the world to dial in an exact range with your range finder and be able to dial in like a single pin and have a really unobstructed sight picture. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think it makes sense too, for some of the guys that just really, they're really adverse to 
cluttered site pictures and they just really do best with a single pin, then for some of those guys, man, if you have a single pin site that you just have it set to a fixed range and you just aim a little bit higher, a little bit low, depending on where you're at in that realm of whitetail shot distances, I think that makes a lot of sense for those type of people too. Uh, and if you're are the type of guy who has any kind of issues with anticipation or target panic, you know, it's like I mentioned before, it's not necessarily the cure all to target panic. I think there's, there's other ways definitely that you can go about trying to reduce anticipation overall. Uh, but that said, I, I do feel like you're less likely to get anticipation because you're not covering up the spot you want to hit, right? If I'm aiming at a 3d target, or if I'm aiming at even a spot, I'll look at the place I want to hit and my subconscious will center up the left and right. And I'm just looking at that spot. And once I know that the site is sitting on the spot that I want to hit, then, you know, it's comfortably floating there. Then I'll perform my shot execution. Same exact uh, method that I would use with the pin site. The difference is with the pin site, I draw back, I settle that pin on the spot I want to hit and it's covering it up and it just kind of floats. And when I'm comfortable with that float right on top of the dot, then I start executing my shot. So it's really not much difference in terms of how I'm utilizing the sites. It's just, a, you know, the difference in, in one case, I have the pin covering up the spot I want to hit. Whereas with the EZV, it's not being covered up. So for some guys that can definitely help. Uh, and that's not just me saying that that's, you know, from verified guys messaging me and, and saying it's the case for them. Uh, bow tuning versus arrow tuning. Okay. So I feel like I have to say something uh, on this particular topic because, um, with, with some of the videos that have been coming out recently, there's a kind of a misconception floating around in that you can basically take whatever system you're working on right now, and you can start shooting heavier arrows and just get a field point kit. And you're eventually going to find a field point that is the right weight. And that's going to be one that shoots bear shafts beautifully for you. And that's what you're going to be able to run with. And the problem, the only problem with that is it assumes that your bow is tuned appropriately from the get go, right? There's kind of two methods that you can use to find a, a perfect match. One is you basically set the bow to spec, meaning that whatever the manufacturer has for axle to axle, brace height, all of that is right in line. Your cam lean is good. Your arrow knocking point is set so that it's, you know, 90 degrees off the string or whatever the manufacturer recommends. Your rest is set to the exact distance out from the riser that the manufacturer recommends. And you kind of just don't touch the bow after that, right? You just have it set and then you make minor modifications to the arrow itself, whether it's, you know, cutting down the arrow in small increments or changing the point weight to try and get that dynamic match to be perfectly matched to your bow. The other, uh, concept is you can basically take a specific arrow and make minor modifications to the bow in order to make sure that the, you know, the two are once again in match, whether it's, um, you know, adjusting the, um, you know, the cam shimming or the cam lean, or if you are, you know, bumping the rest a little bit one direction or the other, there's, there's ways that you can adjust the bow to make sure that you're shooting that arrow in a, a perfectly clean hole. And the issue that I think some guys are having based on the messages I'm receiving is that they're kind of skipping the step of making sure that that bow is set up appropriately, making sure that everything's to spec. You know, they might just be taking an arrow set up from a test kit and their cam timing's off, right? Or their knock fit is way too tight and that's going to affect all the bear shaft results they're going to be getting, or their grip isn't consistent. And just trying to match an arrow to what could potentially be an untuned bow. And that could be giving them um, a lot of headaches and it's kind of, it's kind of going about things out of order. So you got to make sure that number one, 
you set your bow to spec or you have the pro shop set your bow to spec, that means the rest is set at, you know, 13, 16th off on the riser or whatever it's supposed to be. Arrow rest is set so that your uh, knock is, you know, coming off the string at 90 degrees or whatever is recommended by the manufacturer. Your cam lean is good. All that kind of stuff happens as a, a starting point. And then you can choose your arrow spines and point weights based off of what should be an acceptable range. And you can go ahead and fine tune from there. Uh, I think that is a very important step that gets missed. If I have a bow, like I mentioned earlier with the new breeds and same thing with the gearhead, if my bow is set to spec and I feel like it's tuned and I got my rest running right down the center where it should be, man, I can, I can shoot a lot of different arrow recipes and still have phenomenal flight. Uh, and so if, if you get, uh, you know, a setup where you have one set of point weights that's throwing your bear shaft way knock left, uh, and then you change the point a little bit and it's like totally the opposite and your grip is the same, that might indicate that there's, you know, knock travel issues or something else is going on. Uh, so that's just something to keep, to be aware of. The other thing too, is grip really pay attention with you're doing bear shaft work at your grip uh, and just kind of your overall shot execution. And to see how much this can matter, go ahead and try torquing your bow one direction, firing a bear shaft and then torque your bow the other direction, fire a bear shaft again, and just see how much difference there can be. Um, you know, so the, the whole method of, you know, shooting bear shafts to dial it in, it's great, but you gotta, I, I think just make sure you're, you're taking everything in consideration in terms of setting your bow to spec, getting that setup tuned, making sure your arrows are all matched with one another in terms of their spine alignment by doing the things like knock tuning, and then fine tuning your, your point weight and arrow, uh, overall setup from there. And I think you'll be really happy with the result. Uh, you'll be able to shoot a lot of different systems. Uh, you know, even different point weights and especially at whitetail ranges, probably be totally happy and totally adequate. Um, and if you look at guys who are very elite level archers, when they're talking about adjusting point weight for them, it's not like, Hey, if I adjust my point weight to this, I'm getting this kind of a tear. It's like, Hey, if I adjust my point weight up or down by 25 grains, it makes my group this much bigger or this much smaller at, you know, whatever range they're shooting at. And they're going for, you know, group size and consistency is kind of their fine tuning, uh, to, to be able to get the most accurate setup possible. Not at all saying that the process as it's so-called doesn't work. It absolutely does, but just make sure you're not skipping any important steps there. And so that brings us to the last of the common questions, which is the arrow setups that I am going with this year, as well as Sam. So for me, I have two arrow recipes that I have built up. They're, you know, set into stone at this point. And at the end of the year, I'll evaluate and see which one of them I want to continue going with probably next year. But I'm pretty happy so far with both of these setups, having shot them and kind of fine tuned them over the course of the summer. One of them is the, the vector hammer shafts in a 300 spine cut to, I believe, 27 and a half inches with 65 grains of ethics components in the front and 125 grain point that also has a four fletch boning heat with a left offset about two and a half degrees or so and the fire knock lighted knock system if you look at a spine software or spine chart that system basically runs me right dead nuts down you know what the ideal spine theoretically should be uh, and for me it shoots very well it's it, probably one of the the more you know, accurate and forgiving overall setups that I've had. The four fletch heat, it seems like it's really great for field points. It is so quiet in comparison to basically anything else that I've tested. I shouldn't say so quiet, but it's enough quieter that it's noticeable for me. 
So it's it's probably on par with things like the Max Stealth and other veins that are longer, low-profile veins. It's quieter than the Blazers. It's a little bit quieter than the Fobs. It's quieter than you know the Zingers, some of the other things that I've tested this year. Basically quieter than any of your normal high-profile veins. But with that caveat comes the fact that it's not quite as much stabilization as a higher-profile vein might be. So there's your trade-off right there. Flies phenomenal with field points. With mechanical broadheads, flies phenomenal. With smaller compact heads like the Iron Will, for me, I'm getting really great flight, really good forgiveness with that. But if I throw on a little bit bigger broadhead, I start to maybe run into some issues with just overall forgiveness. You know, I'll get, you know, some shots that fly just like they should, and I might get another shot where you get a little bit of tail wag or something, and it's, it's just not quite, you know, strong enough. So that's kind of where that system lies. And overall, in terms of just how that arrow weight and FOC stacks up, they're about 545 grains and about 13% front of center. So with that set of numbers, I don't have any concerns or issues. Uh, basically, you know, hunting anything. If I was going to hunt anything in North America, I would not have an issue with that arrow setup coming out of my bow. And the other arrow setup that I have is it's a little bit uh, on the other end of the spectrum in terms of weight and FOC. Uh, whereas this first setup was kind of what you would call, you know, moderate in today's terms or high front of center at 13% and fairly heavy um, in terms of what is, you know, still considered mostly normal. This one is a little bit lighter at 505 total grains, but it's higher up in the front of center in terms of being like 16 or 17% with the lighted knocks. Uh, and it's a 250 spine rip TKO, which is a little bit thinner wall and that's a uh, lighter GPI. That's how it's able to get that higher front of center. It's 210 total grains up front with 75 grain iron well stainless steel hit inserts the 10 grain collars and then 125 grain points. And for those, I found that that arrow size, if I drill out the, the small diameter fobs, they slide over just perfectly with an interference fit. And the broadhead flight I'm getting with that setup is just, it's great. I love it. So I've been really happy with that setup overall. It's shooting a little bit faster than the first one, given that it's lighter speed. Uh, it's, you know, right around 272 feet per second, whereas that first setup was shooting about 263, both of which are significantly faster than what I was shooting last year. Uh, over the past couple of years, what I've deer hunted with has ranged from 238 feet per second to 250. So I get a little bit more speed while not giving up any arrow weight with that gearhead bow, as opposed to what I was shooting before. And in terms of arrow flight with broadheads, I don't have any concerns with either. And actually, you know, even though they are different weight and a little bit different speed out of the bow out to 40 yards, man, I am hard pressed to find a significant difference. If you keep shooting further and further, that difference starts to become more and more apparent, but whitetail ranges, you know, I almost, I mean, I, I could, but I, I won't want to, I could probably shoot them interchangeably out of my setup. Uh, but more likely what I would prefer to do is just, you know, stick with one, start off the season with it. Uh, hopefully you shoot a deer or two with it and then, you know, take a step back, switch the arrows back over to the other ones in the quiver and just verify once again, that the tune is rock solid with that other arrow setup, And then just make sure that my pins once again, are, are dialed in, or, you know, the easy V insert is right, or, you know, whatever the case may be. So those are the systems that I'm using this year. Reasonings why I like the heavier arrow weights 
but I also like the trajectory, especially shooting out those longer ranges. Not so much for whitetails. I don't think it matters quite as much, uh, but it's something that I can start to continue getting used to more and more so, so that when I start going back out and do some we- doing some Western hunts, which will likely be next year again, that 270 uh, feet a second mark at a 500 plus grain arrow is, is uh, a pretty solid overall system. So for Sam, she is shooting less poundage than I am, of course, and much less draw length. Her draw length right now is 25 inches and she's built up her draw weight to right now. She's shooting 41 pounds. And with her arrow setup, she is shooting the Valkyrie system. So she has the 400 spine VAP arrows and you can either get those black Eagle X impact or, um, or VAP, I think is kind of the two options they have from Valkyrie. We ended up just buying the shaft separate from Lancaster and building them up with the Valkyrie components, 22 grain sleeves and 200 grain heads. So 222 up front on that arrow. And then on the back end, she's shooting fobs with uh, the lighted knocks from clean shot, the knockout lighted knocks, uh, because she doesn't have the same mod with her fobs that I do. She still has the knock kind of holding that fob in. And so having a little bit longer knock like what that clean shot is allows her to get by without facial contact. But her arrows, if you look at it from a compound perspective, they seem super heavy for her draw length. But when you step back and kind of put it in a different perspective, think about it. If it was a traditional arrow setup right around 10 to 11 grains per pound, which is a really common arrow weight to draw length ratio in the traditional archery world. And those arrows are just incredibly quiet coming out of her rig. I think she's probably shooting a little bit over 200 feet per second with that setup. And with those Valkyrie heads, we got her the original heads as opposed to the the short jags. It's just the original long, uh, three blade jaggers. I don't have really any concerns with, uh, her shooting deer and getting adequate penetration with that setup, you know, could have went heavier, but I mean, it's again, one of those things where balance is important to, to still maintain you know, if we give her a 600 or 650 grain arrow setup, then man, even inside of 20 yards, there's a lot of, you know, pin gap differences there. You know, if you have a 10, 20 yard pin, for example, where we, we have her right now, basically with a 15 yard pin and a 25 yard pin. And for most of the whitetail shot distances she's going to get, she's just going to be using that 15 yard pin and just aiming a little higher, a little low. So that's going to be a little bit easier to maintain in the woods. And also for her, just like with my rip TKO setup, the spine is stiffer than what you could probably get away with, meaning she could add more point weight and probably still be fine, or she could add bow poundage and still be fine. And she's shooting 41 pounds right now, but eventually she, I think, wants to continue to build up higher and higher in her draw poundage. And when she does that, there's a very good likelihood that as she continues to go up to 45, maybe even 50 pounds, we might not need to adjust her arrow recipe at all. Uh, I tend to find that with broadhead flight, if I'm shooting on the stiff side, it doesn't it doesn't seem to be, you know, ultimately all that impactful. Um, a lot of guys will tell you that the uh, arrow is less forgiving when it's too stiff and it's not necessarily an arrow flight thing, but it might be more penalizing of shots that don't break perfectly. Um, and I, I guess I haven't noticed it as much, but that may not be the case for everybody. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, it's always going to be good to stay on the, you know, whatever is most accurate for you, uh, the most optimal spine. But it seems like when I'm shooting fixed heads, especially at whitetail ranges, it's hard for me to notice any kind of detriment from shooting arrow spines that are a little bit stiffer than what the spine charts would call for. And so likely we'll be able to keep that same arrow recipe for her. She's going to be able to grow into it. 
Um, and that's, you know, that's basically it. So we'll be able to reevaluate kind of as the season goes and give you guys some updates on that. So hope this podcast was helpful. That takes care of a lot of the more common questions uh, that I've been getting. And if you guys have any more, just go ahead and keep them coming through, you know, Instagram Messenger, Facebook Messenger, all that sort of stuff. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.